Podcastle, episode 293, for January 2nd-ish, 2014. Holy hobbits, 2014? How'd that happen? The High King Dreaming, by Daniel Abraham, rated PG. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, and it's a new year for us here. We've got a great story for you this week to bring it in. Something of a contemplative little piece by the one and only Daniel Abraham. It's a story about the past and future colliding and the uncertain present. The High King Dreaming was originally published in Fearsome Journeys, edited by Jonathan Strahan, and we're very proud to present it here. Daniel Abraham's an incredibly prolific author. We've published a bunch of his stories here at Podcastle, and he also has three different novel series going strong. Probably my current favorite epic fantasy series, The Dagger and the Coin, with the most recent entry being The Tyrant's Law, the science fiction series The Expanse, which he writes with Ty Franks as James S.A. Corey, the most recent book there being Abaddon's Gate, and The Black Sun's Daughter, urban fantasy series, which he writes as MLN Hanover, all worth checking out. Oh, he also writes the Game of Thrones comics, and has a bunch of short stories, including the Ball Four and Meriwether Steampunk series. And yes, I'm happy to say, we'll have another one of those here for you soon in 2014. Cat Rambo is your reader. She's another incredibly prolific author here at Escape Artists. She last collaborated at Podcastle with Ben Burgess in Logic and Magic and the Time of the Boatlift. But it's been way too long since she actually read for us, and we thought her voice would work very nicely for us on this one. Kat has several collections of her own short fiction out, the latest being Near and Far. Enjoy the story, and remember to keep on dreaming. The High King Dreaming by Daniel Abraham The High King is not dead, but dreaming, and his dreams are of his death. The sun is bright in the blue expanse of sky, the meadow more beautiful than it had ever been in life, because he sees it from above. The banners of the kingdoms he unified shift in the gentle breeze. Stonewell, Harnell, Redwater, Leftbridge, Holt. The kings who bent their knees before him do so again, and again with tears in their eyes. The silver throne is there, but empty. The scepter and whip lay crossed on its seat. His daughter, once the princess and now the queen, sits at its foot, her body wrapped in morning gray. The pyre on which his body rests has no fuel beneath it. No acrid stench of pitch competes with the wildflower's perfume. His beard is white, bright in the sun, and as full as frost. His shoulders are thick, as are his arms and his thighs. His eyes are closed, but his lips hold the memory of a smile. The blade justice rests on his chest, weighing him down in death as it had in life. His cold fingers hold it easily. He is like a statue of himself, and the legend still unwritten below him should be grace and power. He does not recall what brought him low, nor does it matter. He rose in an age of war when all nations stood against each other, and he forged peace. The eighteen peaks, snow-capped and bright in the spring sun, have not looked down on bloodshed in a decade. The keeps at Nereford and Casson store grain now. Any child may walk the bloody bridge at Hawthor, 
and return across it at nightfall. Some lands he took at the point of a sword, some with a wise word, some by sharing grief with enemies who'd expected their pain to draw forth only laughter. But with justice in his hand and God in his heart, he remade the world into a better place than he had found it. All the events of adventures of his life have strung together like individual steps in a long march that they might bring him here. But that march is not done. In his dream he sees the court's cunning man, withered by years and buoyed up by an endless and sometimes vicious humor. He is wearing a robe of gold, as one might at a baby's naming ceremony, and so he stands out amongst the mourners like a candle in darkness. Do not weep, he cries, waving a staff wrapped with sage at the crowd. Do you wail and beat your breasts when your father naps? Then do not weep. Stand tall and quiet. Be quiet or take yourselves to the yard and play your games there. There is no call for sorrow here. King Abend of Holt rises, his hand on the hilt of his sword. The high king lies dead and you say there's no call to weep? What madness is taking you, old man? The madness of knowing too much, the cunning man says. The high king is not dead, but dreaming. He waits now in places beyond our sight, but he is not gone. All of history remains before us, and we have lost him now only because he must rest. When he is needed, the high king shall rise, and justice shall again protect the land. His daughter looks up, and the devastation on her face falters. There is something like hope in her eyes. She looks to her father's body, sobs again, and the cunning man's staff wraps her smartly on the shoulder. Smartly, but not hard. Would you wake him already? he asks, and his eyes are gentle. The girl who was once the princess and is now the queen smiles as she has not in days. Perhaps that has been the cunning man's aim all along. She holds out her hand, and the cunning man kneels. She stands, her morning robes made glorious by the sun and the sky, by her beauty and her gravity. She climbs to the silver throne, lifts scepter and whip in her hands, and takes the throne for the first time. One by one they come before her. They bend their knees. They swear again the oaths they once swore to him. And to each of them she says, When he is needed, he shall rise. For some it is a comfort. For some it is a threat. The high king dreams, and his dreams move on. Time is a different thing for him now, and he moves through it to places where the threads of fancy and prophecy are indistinguishable. He is aware of the meadow under a blanket of snow, and then he is not. He is aware of the sepulchre around him, dark and silent, of his body as cold and as heavy as stone, and as immune to corruption. And then he is aware of nothing, not even of being unaware. The war boils around him suddenly. Men are dying in the fields where crops should grow. He sees the obscene dancing light from the fires that consume Hera and Gant. The rich land outside the keep of Stormcoast is barren, its woods chopped down for fires, its grain eaten by the besieging army. From the battlements of the keep, the banner of Lethbridge flies defiant. From the besieging forces, Holt. His bannermen stand one against the other, and the land is churned into a lifeless mock. His daughter sits the silver throne, looking half a child to him in the unkind morning light. Her skin is ashen, her eyes hold a weariness that speaks of her fright and her uncertainty. It is also night, and she is also with the cunning man, 
sitting on a low stool in his private study among the great webwork of his experiments. The High King wills his eyes to open, the dream to break. Even as he sees her rise from the throne, he tries to grip the pommel of justice, as if the sword would pull him back to the world. He dreams that his fingers move and take their grip. Stop, his daughter says, and he imagines she means him. Another voice answers her, the captain of his guard, of hers. Majesty, bring her to me instead. The captain is older than he was when the High King lived. His dark eyes are webbed by the marks of age, and he has fewer teeth. His black hair is white. He nods but does not turn away. She's already been called to the gallows, Majesty. Then you should hurry, his daughter says. Her voice carries a joyless mirth that he recognizes as once he recognized her other imitations of him. The captain hurries, his footsteps echoing. The night before, she looks up at the cunning man and says, He isn't here. I need him. If you needed him, the cunning man says, he would rise. If he is not risen, then this is not the need. I don't know anything about war. I don't know what he would do. Neither did he, the cunning man says, not at the first. The captain reaches the gallows and leads the prisoner away. The crows look down in disappointment not to have fresh eyes to peck or the taste of a woman's tongue. What would he have done, the cunning man says, sucking at his teeth. He shrugs, ridden with blade in hand to the battle and enforced his will over any who stood in his way. I can't do that, she says. It is the whine of a child and also the sober assessment of a woman grown. Then the question is not what he would do, but what you shall. The prisoner kneels before the throne. Her hair is the same auburn as Abend of Holtz. The line of her jaw is as his. The daughter of the rebel and the daughter of the unifier face each other, and the air between them holds its breath. You are hostage to King Holtz's good behavior, the queen says. Unfortunately, your father's behavior leads a great deal to be desired. The night before, in the cunning man's dark room, she scowls, her mind searching for something. If he is not risen, it is because this is not the need. The High King's hand relaxes from around Justice's hilt. Yes, Majesty, the hostage says. He has sentenced you to death by his actions. Your life is mine. I understand, she breathes. Then take your life to Stonewell in my name. You will write a single letter to your father, asking his surrender in return for what amnesty I see fit to grant, and inform him that if he refuses, you will become Queen of Stonewell, and all lands of Holt shall devolve to you and your husband upon his death. I will inform King Merriam of Stonewell likewise. Then we shall see if he can't find the men to break this siege. No, the High King thinks, Stonewell's recalcitrance cannot be rewarded. If he has not come out in force to put down the rebellion, he must be punished. Justice demands loyalty, but the hostage bows her head. Thank you, my queen. I'm sorry, his daughter says. Her voice is petulant, reluctant, and still she puts her hand on the hostage girl's shoulder. The girl begins to weep again. It is a mistake, and the echoes of it will haunt her. He is certain of it, but he can dream that he is wrong. And so he imagines that the war fades, and that the deaths of the soldiers and the wounding of the land become something else. Where bloodshed was worst, the bodies of the fallen feed the brightest grass. The High King feels the growth as if it were rising from within him, 
a great warm exhalation that does not stop. For a time he is the land, and he is rich and fruitful. His own body, sealed in stone, does not fade. A mouse comes and makes its home in the crook of his arm. It lives its full span, giving birth to its young, who scatter through the field, and dine beside him its thin bones against his still pale but eternal flesh. Songs are sung of him, and then songs are sung of the songs, changing every time until the words are like words written in dreams. The high king who brought the land together, who is the land, whose blood still flows in the veins of the queen and the water of the rivers. There is awe in the songs and reverence, and some smut as well, and some anger. He hears them all, seeing the events they recount as if they were true. He sees himself battling with Lord Souther, blade to blade, and remembers finding Souther's body after the battle, crushed under his fallen horse. The truth and the exaggeration and lies pour together, becoming something larger, richer, and true in ways that know nothing of fact. He is not dead but dreaming, they sing, and when the need comes, he shall rise. The captain of his guard dies from an autumn fever. King Arad of Lethbridge dies, and his son Corman takes his throne. The cunning man does not die, but passes into a twilight that leads him out of the world. The high king hears him laughing as he goes, and knows the old man will never be seen again by mortal eyes. There is cruelty in the sound as much as sorrow. The high king dreams soft, pleasant dreams, until they turn to nightmare. A ray of warm sunlight heats the rich-smelling earth. Green wheat nods in the soft breeze. The distant buzz of an insect's wing, and the high king feels shrill horror run through him. He tries to scream. The insect is no larger than the head of a pin. Its black carapace is split, its wings beating so quickly they cannot be seen. Its mouth is a sharpness. He hears it land on a stalk of wheat with a boob like great stones hurled against a castle wall. The inhuman mouth touches the soft green flesh. In the fields the farmers toil. In the cities the merchants and traders make their negotiations. Only the dreaming king knows that it is too late, and his cry cannot be heard. The blight spreads like ink spilled upon a map. The sun sets on rich fields and rises to find them blackened and stinking. Throughout the land the harvest fails. It has happened before. Starving springs have come and passed, but the next year is the same. Mothers make nettle tea for their babies because there is nothing else to drink. Bony cattle are slaughtered in their fields rather than let them suffer as their keepers do. Desperation smells like an empty pot left too long over the fire. He feels it in his breast, profound and sorrowful. Another blighted year, and the kingdoms will be peopled by bones. War is the only hope. A war not of justice, but necessity. A single dusty tear tracks from his closed eye. It is terrible, but it is needed. If it were only him, he might starve and die proud, but it is his daughter and the land she inherited from him. The time of need has come upon them, and he dreams with a bleak certainty that this is his waking hour. He dreams of his daughter, her face gaunt, standing before her lords. Their condition fills him with dread. The great kings are shades of themselves, withered by hunger and by years. Only King Corman of Lethbridge and Queen Soraya of Stonewall and Holt, who have never seen battle, are hale enough to lead an army. His peace has lasted too long. There are no war leaders left but him. The irony is bitter. 
The banner of the enemy waves in the winter sun, crimson and gold with a black star in its center. He does not know it. He sees the enemy, tall men, if they are men, with massive black eyes and ink worked into their skins. Their cheeks are too wide, their lips too thin. Their mouths are purple-black, and their teeth sharp as hounds. They stand in the throne room, proud and stern. Cruel horns rise from the temples of their leader, and he wears armor of silk layered upon silk layered upon silk, strong enough to stop an arrow or a sword. His voice is human, his inflection strange, musical, and unsettling. With the logic of dreams, the High Lord knows these are hraki, but he does not know what the word means. Their leader shakes his horned head, as if in bewilderment at the High Queen's words. Her kings stand arrayed about the silver throne, starving but stern. Two more years, according to the cunning men, his daughter says. Her face is thicker than it was, no longer a girl's but a woman's, handsome and strong. She holds the scepter and whip with a forgetfulness born of long company. They are as much extensions of her body as a swordsman's blade. After that, our fields will be as rich as they were before. Our strength will return. But first we must weather those years. It will mean fodder for our horses and cattle, grain for our people, seed for our fields when the blight has run its course. And in return, the Haraki says, though he knows the answer. The day before, his daughter is in the small council chamber he used himself. She sits at the Blackwood table where his wars were planned, and her kings are with her, as once they were with him. Do not do this, King Tenon of Redwater says, and his voice cracks on the word. We will find another way. We are strong, my queen. We are hungry, but we are strong. Her eyes are calm. She is in both places at once, as is her dreaming father. What would we be? King Abbot of Harnell asks. The voice that had been strong and rolling once is wet. His eyes are roomy. Changed, the High Queen says. We would be changed. And the next day, at the same time, in return, I will take your son as my husband. He cannot be king, for only my father's blood may sit this throne, but he will be the queen's consort, and your grandson will be high king. Dreaming, the high king calls out. In sepulchre, his mouth opens for the first time in years. Young Corman of Lethbridge slams his hand upon the Blackwood table. We need not do this. We are strong. Your father would not have asked this of you. We can take what we need by force. When he is needed, he shall rise, creaks and whispers, makes the air rich as if it were the scent of blood and smoke. We could take it by force. Would that be justice? His daughter asks mildly. You would take my son? The Haraki asks. His voice is torn between amusement and disbelief. I would, she says, looking down from the throne. Gracious queen, the horned man says, I thank you, but this cannot be. There have been such unions, his daughter says. They have been fruitful. Our honor does not permit that we lay with those not of our kind. The High Queen smiles, lifts her chin. She looks like her mother, sounds like her. Make an exception, she says. And the day before turns her eyes to the old men at her table. Would that be justice still hangs in the air? That they cannot answer is also an answer. Mine is not the only way, it's true. We could take to the fields, or we could accept the loans offered by the bankers in Palinsurai. One would mean the deaths of the innocent, the other would mean selling ourselves in all but name. 
two silences mix. Grief pulls at the High King's dreaming heart. Grief and shock and something else. My father found five kingdoms shattered by war, she says to the kings of the Black Table, and forged them into one. You who would have been my rivals are my brother, my sister, my uncles now. My father was strong and he was just, and you changed for him. Will you not also change for me? I will not command my son to do this, the Haraki says, but I will speak with him. The dream shifts, and the High King is aware of a pool of still water. The stink of its stagnation fills his nostrils, and he knows it is not real. It is an image his mind is conjured to see what is too large to see. A drop of blood falls in the pool center, and where the ripples pass, the water is made pure and sweet. A small black insect floats on its surface, its wings spread like the arms of a drowned man, and he knows the blight is gone. Not defeated, not conquered, but endured until its natural death takes it. Some day, in the way of all plagues, it will return, but for now it is sleeping. It is dreaming. This is not the need, and never was. The unbroken dream goes on, and more than that, it deepens. Like the ripple, its movement is in all directions at once. All history remains before us, the cunning man says. The dream is unmoored in time now. What has been and what will be reach around like arms around the trunk of a great tree, and their fingers interlace. He dreams that he is dreaming, and that he will wake in his room. His child is being born, and fear has exhausted him, but the doors will open, and the cunning man and the physician and the midwife will wake him with word of the birth. He cannot stay. Redwater's forces are almost at Hawthor, and if his enemy takes the bloody bridge, all that he has fought for will fail. He knows he should not be here, and it gives the dream a sense of terrible urgency. The woman's cries are not of pain, but of purpose. The pain is there as well, but secondary. She is in a place of extremes, a place between being and not being, and her work is vital and profound and punishing. He loves her more than his body can contain. His teeth grind against each other, but he cannot wake. He cannot help her. There is a desperate choking sound, an unfamiliar cough, a thin wire of a whale as much animal as human, and he weeps. The worst is past. He holds the girl wrapped in soft cloth, looks into eyes that have not yet decided what color they will be. I will make this world deserve you, he says. He remembers having said, as if it were a thing he had done years ago. And then it is a different baby he is holding, black-eyed with dark lips pulled back in a wide, joyful grin. For a moment the babe's swimming gaze seems to find him, and it shrieks with delight before it looks away again. It seems I have a son, his daughter says. Her voice is a tissue of exhaustion and satisfaction. We have a son? A man's odd, musical voice says. He sits at her side. His horns are curved back, and not as large as his father's. His black eyes are wide with wonder. Well, the High Queen says, you likely have a son, but it's certain that I do. The horned man's expression flickers through confusion to comprehension to indignation and then bursts forth in laughter. You are a wicked, wicked woman, the queen's consort says as he cradles her hand to his breast. The love in his black eyes is unmistakable. She chuckles with him, kisses his knuckle, lays back spent from her efforts. Her face is wide from the months of carrying her boy and her hair is dark with sweat, and she is joyful, the mother of her family and of the land, the center of her people and her kingdom.
The High King looks into his arms, and she is red-faced, stunned and confused. She is barely formed, helpless, and so vulnerable a chill might take her away. Curled into herself, she fits in his two hands together. The wars must end. Redwater is coming to Hawthor, and he must be stopped. If she is to live in a world that is not rocked by constant battle, Redwater must be defeated. And so the High King dreams that he will be for her. And in the meadow, King Tenon of Redwater bends his knee to the new High Queen. No acrid stench of pitch competes with the wildflower's perfume. The cunning man in his bright celebratory robe capers and laughs and spills wisdom in jokes too subtle to fully comprehend. In her young face there is the echo of the babe that has gone before and a promise of the woman still to come. She leans forward, touches the weeping Redwater's shoulder. When he is needed, he shall rise. In the street, men such as he is known mix with the new black-eyed horned strangers. Unfamiliar dishes share the plate with the foods that once passed his lips. Around the winter bonfires, strange and musical voices rise with the smoke. They who never knew him sing songs he does not know, and also they sing of the high king who once brought peace. They sing of how he shall rise again in some coming age when he is needed. No one sings of the bloody bridge or of making peace with Holt, and the man they sing of seems less and less like him. He dreams of himself in the sepulchre. No rot has touched him, but his skin is drowned in dust. The great blade justice has rusted away to nothing. His fingers cup the shape of a hilt that has fallen away from between them. The world has moved on. His daughter has moved on as she should. The High King is not dead, but dreaming. He dreams of his daughter and the dangers that grow from being his child, from being any man's child. He dreams of an age that knew him, when he was not only loved but also needed. He dreams that when she needs him again he will rise, and he dreams that she will need him again. He dreams, and the dreams go on forever. And welcome back. We're not dead. We're merely asleep. Dreaming. And if anybody should call on us to return, to awake, we will to defend our kingdom. Our podcastle. Well, it's that time of the year podcastle when we look back and think about our favorite stories. At podcastle, honestly, this is one of my favorite times of the year. We hit the end, and Anna and I look back at the stories that we published and kind of chagrin look at each other, or metaphorically look at each other through text and say, hey, we helped make that. We brought you a bunch of stories over the last year, whether it was Kenneth Schneier's selected program notes from the retrospective exhibition of Teresa Rosenberg-Latimer, or Derek Kunskin's Juan Casetas and the Zapateros workshop, or Megan Arkenberg's The Copper Roof War, or Ken lose Maxwell's demons, or, well, I don't know, this story. I could go on and on. It was a good year of storytelling, and seriously, it's been a real pleasure sharing it all with you. It has been a very tough year for us, personally, and I'm never sure whether I'm saying too much or not saying enough, but I felt like it was one of the most difficult years of my life, and I'm really glad I'm looking at the end of it now. I'm very much looking forward to this new year. 
As a company, we had a real scare in October when we realized we may not be here next year. But we put the call out, and you all came through for us in a very big way. We're happy we're going to be here for at least one more year. Hopefully, many, many more. The skate artist has a big place, spread out over the countries, continents, space, and time. We do this out of love, and I want to take a moment to give a big thank you to all the people who work here. You hear me every week, sorry, here at Podcastle, but there are a lot of other people behind the scenes. Anne Leckie has been here since the beginning of Podcastle as an associate editor and co-host. Did I mention her book Ancillary Justice is out and just got named the Sci-Fi Book of the Year over at io9? Well, check it out. M.K. Hobson, the awesome, funny, fantastic Hobson, is our other co-host and frequent reader. Our new associate editor is LaShawn Wanick, and we're so excited to have her on board. We're expecting great, not terrible, just plain great things from her in the coming year. We've got an awesome pair of bestiary keepers, I mean forum months, in the form of Aussie Cat and Talia. Then there's Peter Wood, the man behind the soundboard, making it all sound so very, very good. Finally, there's my partner in crime, Anna Schwind, who, discussing stories with her on a nearly weekly basis, is one of the things I look forward to every week. And that's just us at Podcastle. We're joined by our brothers and sisters at Escape Pod and Pseudopod, Escape Pod, edited by the excellent weird man of many, many tentacles, Norm Shorman, who is assisted by Nathan Lee and his crack team of slushers, Atan, who doubles as their forum moderator, Aussie Cat, who doubles as ours, John Stimson, Angela Lee, and Rachel Jones. Matt Weller produces the stories to give them that extra kapow. Norm is joined by Alistair Stewart, and if Norm's the man of many tentacles, Alistair, his co-host, is the man of many hats, some of them flaming. He's also the host of Pseudopod every week, and I think he occasionally sleeps, or maybe he has an app that does that for him. Sean Garrett keeps watch as editor over at those devilish towers at Pseudopod, where he compels Alex Hoflick, Nicole Sudeth, Nick Winnick, and Brian Lieberman, who has another life as their form moderator. And finally, there's Graham Dunlop, the once-and-future Lizard King, who does their sound production, giving it that slick sensation that makes you want to pump your fists in the air as you travel down the highway to hell. That's our team here at Escape Artists. It's a good one, and I'm proud to have been part of it for the last four years. Of course, I'm not covering everybody. We've got fantastic readers like Wilson Fowley, Steve Anderson, Elizabeth Green Musselman, many, many more. Fantastic authors, but those are the people that show up pretty much every week, taking the time to feed and clothe you with stories. Hopefully, it makes a difference for you. It sure has for us. So really, from all of us to all of you, thanks for an amazing year last year. Happy New Year. As I said to one of my friends earlier today, may your dreams continue to be worth dreaming, and may you have a new year that breaks all the rules in the best possible way. Thanks so much for listening. Have a happy new year. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. 
Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. 